Welcome to the latest episode of the In Conversation with eClinical Medicine podcast. I'm Derek Inane, Senior Editor. And I'm Hannah Lynn, Senior Editor at eClinical Medicine. Each month, we'll be interviewing the author of a paper published in our journal, giving them an opportunity to provide a deeper discussion of their research. We're here today with Dr. Tiffany O'Connor to talk about traumatic brain injury in precariously housed persons and how her and her team's recent work on the topic helps us to better understand this complex issue. Dr. O'Connor earned her PhD in clinical psychology with specialization in neuropsychology from Simon Fraser University and is registered with the College of Psychologists of Ontario. Dr. O'Connor works full-time at Hamilton Health Sciences in the area of acquired brain injury. Her current research work, based at Simon Fraser University, examines the incidence of risk factors for and cognitive functional outcomes of traumatic brain injury within the outpatient acquired brain injury program. Traumatic brain injury is examined in the context of comorbid substance use, physical illness and mental disorders. Thank you for joining us, Dr. O'Connor, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So firstly, our listeners might be interested to hear a little bit more about your career and how you came to be active in this field. Are there any inspirations in particular that led you down this path? Yeah, I think for me, my interest in traumatic brain injury started quite early. So I grew up my entire life as an athlete. And I think for most people growing up in playing sports, there's a quite a lot of experience with either yourself or your teammates or those that you play with who have experienced concussions. And as I started my undergraduate work, it was at the time when the awareness of the importance of traumatic brain injury and concussions was increasing over time. So there was definitely more talk of concussions. There was definitely more impact of of wanting to screen and understand the impacts of concussions. So I kind of grew up along that influence. My research focus changed somewhat when I had a family member who experienced a severe brain injury. And it really brought to light some of the complexities of recovering from an injury to the brain, particularly when there are other comorbid factors happening. So, you know, in athlete populations, oftentimes brain injuries are happening in individuals who are otherwise healthy, nothing else really happening in in the brain to impact their functioning or ability to compensate from the brain injury. However, you know, there's beauty in the complexity of of being a human being. And so there are quite a lot of individuals who, when they're acquiring a brain injury, it's not happening in an otherwise healthy brain. And so it really brought my interest to understanding those complexities. So I did my graduate training at Simon Fraser University and got involved in the hotel study, which is a large longitudinal study that's put on in collaboration between Simon Fraser and the University of British Columbia. And it's a study that broadly looks at health in precariously housed individuals. And so these are individuals who experience numerous risk factors for poor health comes and also traumatic brain injury occurrence. So we really saw that there was a need for an opportunity to examine traumatic brain injury in this population. And so out of that interest and opportunity, we developed the hotel TBI study and um, the research kind of took off from there. 
That's really interesting. It's interesting to hear about the sports side of things because we know a lot about from the NFL, um, there's lots of discussions on concussions, but also now in childhood, like um, in normal football, what we call football over here, I guess, and uh, headering the ball and things like that for, for children and adolescents. Um, there's a lot of research going on there at the moment. What is the clinical definition of traumatic brain injury? Uh, are there difficulties in diagnosing TBI and what impacts can TBIs have on the short and long-term health of individuals? In terms of defining TBI, a standard, more liberal definition is that a traumatic brain injury is any trauma to the head or neck with a known cause, and that results in one or more of either loss of consciousness, post-traumatic amnesia, or being dazed and or confused. There definitely are difficulties in diagnosing a traumatic brain injury, particularly in certain populations. I mean, I think generally a lot of the difficulties in diagnosing TBI come back to the reliance on self-report for the identification of a brain injury happening and the associated symptoms. And we've long known that there can be difficulties with self-report in general for many different reasons, whether it be someone's response style, their insight into um, what might have happened to them, and difficulties with recalling the details of the injury, whether it be because of cognitive limitations or because of the time frame that people are recalling the information over. So there's been a lot of work in trying to improve some of the ways that we are screening for traumatic brain injury and trying to make those screens very proximal to the brain injury itself and having them be more frequently to try to improve upon the self-report of traumatic brain injuries. In the research, we also look at the reliability of self-report. So I know our most recent publication, we looked at whether precariously housed individuals were able to recall the details of their injury over multiple time points. And we were finding that they were reliable reporters of those those details over multiple time points. So I think that's one thing to consider for sure is this self-report mechanism of identifying TBIs. There's also difficulties in certain populations with disentangling traumatic brain injury symptoms from other symptoms. So for example, in precariously housed persons, there is fairly ubiquitous substance use. And so when you are looking at a population where there is somewhat frequent drug overdoses, there can be blackouts related to alcohol intoxication, that when you're examining traumatic brain injury or trying to identify traumatic brain injury in that population, then how do we disentangle what is a loss of consciousness or what is post-traumatic amnesia where there's recall difficulties versus related to substance use and some of those impacts from overdose or intoxication. So that can be a complicated factor for sure, where we really need to take that information into account when we're trying to define what is a traumatic brain injury and really highlights how we may need some additional requirements for identifying a traumatic brain injury in certain populations. So for example, in our research, when a brain injury is thought to occur in the context of a drug overdose or intoxication, then we required that an individual had another observer who saw that there was actually a clear trauma to the head or neck, or there's some observable sign of head trauma. 
So there may need to be different definitions of TBI for different populations, depending on what's needed to make sure that the identification is actually clear. And then I think the, the last part of the question was about the impacts of TBI. And those can be quite widespread. We know that traumatic brain injury is a major cause of death and long-term disability worldwide. But even when that's not the case, traumatic brain injuries can lead to neurocognitive deficits, behavioral changes, mental health symptoms, or psychiatric conditions. And then some of those impairments can really lead to disruptions in someone's functioning in day-to-day life in terms of how well can they function in interpersonal relationships? How well can they reintegrate back into the community and back into their work or vocational setting? So there can be a significant level of of functional impairments that can occur after a traumatic brain injury. Okay. So your recent publication has focused on traumatic brain injury, injury in precariously housed persons. Why is this setting of particular importance in traumatic brain injury? I think that the precariously housed population and many marginalized populations in general are of particular importance that we we are looking at TBI. And it's for a multitude of reasons. I mean, I think if you look at the literature, there's quite a discrepancy in terms of if you're looking at more affluent populations like athlete populations, the literature is a lot more advanced. And if when looking at precariously housed populations, that's really not the case. There is limited research and we are really behind in terms of what we know about brain injury in this population. And I think there are two main reasons for why that's a big problem. For one, we know that precariously housed environments create an environment of risk for brain injury. So there are lots of factors that act as risk factors for people acquiring a brain injury. And that includes the same ones that are present in the general population, like demographic factors, education level, socioeconomic status. But there are also these risk factors that are much more prevalent in precariously housed persons that are really inherent to the environment that create this further increased risk of acquiring a brain injury. So housing instability, substance use, major mental illness, neurological illness, like having a history of of brain injury and likely having a history of brain injury where there's been multiple instances of having a traumatic brain injury occurrence. Those are all known to be known or potential risk factors for having a brain injury. And so, you know, this, this population is more likely to acquire a brain injury because of these risks. The other main factor to consider is that, like I talked about before, the precariously housed population is a population that experiences multi-morbidity. So they're a population that oftentimes is not experiencing brain injury to an otherwise quite healthy brain. They are experiencing brain injury to a brain that is dealing with the burden of multiple other factors that can influence someone's health in general, but of course their ability to recover from a brain injury, their ability to 
compensate to the difficulties associated with a brain injury. So in terms of looking at traumatic brain injury in precariously housed persons, there's really this double impact where on the one hand, these individuals have more risk factors for acquiring a brain injury. They're more likely to experience a traumatic brain injury. And then when they do, they have these additional factors that make it more likely that they're not able to appropriately recover from the brain injury and compensate from the brain injury. And so it really creates this bi-directional process where individuals are experiencing brain injury, they have worse outcomes, and then they're in this cycle of worse and worse functioning over time with multiple factors involved where then we start to think, okay, where do we even intervene? So I think in this population where there is multimorbidity and there's often the question of how do we stop this process and how do we help these individuals to have better outcomes then traumatic brain injury is really one of those modifiable risk factors where we can intervene, we can work to prevent the injuries, we can work to identify them earlier and have individuals get better access to treatment for the brain injuries. And if we think of some of those synergistic effects that can happen down the line, then we're really preventing a lot of those negative outcomes related to the brain injury and related to the brain injury in combination with these other factors. We're seeing a lot of studies which are looking at the multimorbidity approach and making sure that you're addressing more than just one disease which is going on in an individual at any one time because of, as you mentioned, the sort of feedback loop between all of these different diseases which are happening. So so moving on to a more sort of practical uh, approach of things, what, what approaches are you taking or would you like to see initiated globally or at national levels to address disparities in TBI? formation in the most vulnerable populations? I think that there's always a process of events that needs to unfold in that, you know, first it starts with research and identification of really understanding how often things are happening, what are the impacts of them, and then moving towards the complexities of understanding different modifiers of what's happening. And then that builds some of the awareness and understanding that happens in society for us to make big changes. And I think for vulnerable populations, that's really where we are right now, that we are still building our understanding of how often are brain injuries happening in vulnerable populations and why does that matter? Why is it important? So I think, you know, for us, we're really trying to build that research, build that understanding, and then get that information out. So the knowledge translation piece, exactly what we're doing right now, helping to build awareness of what is out there in the research, what is happening in the real world that we're looking at uh, so that people can have a better understanding. And I think the next step would be for there to be more education, both for practitioners to really know that vulnerable populations are a population where we really do need to assess traumatic brain injury. We need to be open to the possibility that needs to be a low threshold for when that happens, that it's not just people who are coming into hospital or clinic uh, with more severe brain injuries before we're looking at that. But it can happen at the more subconcussive level, uh, mild traumatic brain injuries, that they, people are getting access to screening more readily 
And then also in these vulnerable populations that the actual individuals themselves have a good understanding of how common it is to acquire brain injury and what are the symptoms of getting a concussion or a more severe brain injury so that they know when they need to present to hospital or clinic. And so much of our research has included an education piece of trying to get that understanding out to the individuals who are actually most likely to experience a brain injury. And then, you know, with marginalized populations, we know that there's hesitancy in accessing healthcare for various reasons. And so I think we need to work on a lot of those factors so that people really do have easy access to healthcare for screening, for early treatment. And I think that that will help in terms of mitigating a lot of those risks for traumatic brain injury and helping to kind of break that cycle that we talked about. So I think that's the piece where we are right now in terms of doing more research, working on the education and awareness piece, and then getting that out to practitioners and policymakers so that it's really a part of standard practice. So what do we still need to learn about reducing traumatic brain injury in a, in a global context? I think that there's, there's definitely a lot still to be learned. You know, I talked about before that there's this discrepancy in the research of traumatic brain injury that is quite clear where there's a lot of research on more affluent populations, definitely a lot of research on sport-related concussion in athletes. And then there's kind of pockets of other research like blast-related brain injuries in veterans, things like that. But I think a lot of the work needs to be done in terms of closing that gap of our understanding of traumatic brain injury in different populations and making sure we're not leaving marginalized populations behind or globally, you know, less developed nations behind. We also see that as well. I think there's really this view that for certain populations, there are larger issues to focus on. And with the lack of resources to look at everything that may be making an impact, traumatic brain injury gets left behind. So for example, you know, of course, looking at things like nutrition, housing status, physical health concerns, of course, they're important. And we also need to keep in mind that injuries have consequences wherever they occur. And in certain populations, they are more likely to create worse consequences. And so we need to really fill that gap and have it be more so that it's not just the case that marginalized populations are being researched and having access to clinical treatment if they have more severe brain injuries, but it happens earlier down the line. So I think that's one thing, closing that gap. I also think that the vast majority of research is really looking at traumatic brain injury in isolation or looking at comorbidities in isolation. So we're looking at one thing at a time, maybe two things at a time and looking at how they modify each other. But we know that for certain populations, I mean, our previous research has shown that in precariously housed persons, there's a median number of comorbid illnesses that's around three. So individuals are experiencing multiple illnesses at the same time. And so it really doesn't make sense for us to look at traumatic brain injury or any other comorbid factor in isolation when that's not the individual experience. That's not how 
someone's brain is coping with the brain injury. That's not how someone is experiencing the impacts of a brain injury when there are lots of other things going on that can impact their recovery. And so I think there's a lot more research to be done on the impacts, but particularly taking into account the additive, the synergistic effects of traumatic brain injury with these other comorbid factors, because that's going to be much more true to the individual experience. And that's where we can really look to tailor our treatments and our prevention strategies for what's actually happening. So I would say, you know, bridging that gap in the literature, working to look at traumatic brain injury and other comorbid factors together as opposed to an isolation. And then I think there's also still work to be done in terms of understanding the tolerances for traumatic brain injury and the consequences. So much of the research previously has been, you know, a traumatic brain injury is when there is a blow to the head or neck, we have a known cause, and it's causing some alteration in neurological functioning. Now we're starting to understand that even in those otherwise healthy populations like athlete populations that we really need to consider even sub-concussive blows to the head. We need to consider what is the impact of repetitive blows to the head. So oftentimes individuals are not just getting one traumatic brain injury in their lifetime, they're getting multiple. And so again, looking at those complexities and understanding that especially for certain populations, we may need to consider that, you know, changing the definition of of traumatic brain injury, but even understanding that the tolerance for what is going to result in a negative consequence might be a lot lower than we initially thought, particularly when there are other things happening in the brain that are going to impact an individual's ability to recover from a brain injury. So understanding some of those differences and what those can look like would also be an area that we can really learn about and continue to do some research on. A lot of really good food for thought there to end the podcast. Um, So again, thank you again, Dr. O'Connor, and thank you, listener, for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Uh, Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With uh, Eclinical Medicine wherever you usually get your podcasts.